So today, we're going to be reviewing one of the books that really inspired you, Tete, which is um, Mikhail Shulikov's And Quiet Flows the Dawn. Yes, yes, we are. That was a very influential and remains an influential book, as well as a bit of a Bible concerning like cultural and historical things uh, that inspired, well, not really inspired, but rather helped gain the context and ideas and accuracy, hopefully, uh, for 70 fierce years. Exactly. And I'm just going to give a little bit of background about the series, but I'm just looking at the hard copy that you gave me a few months ago. And it says, Mikhail Sholokov was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1965. And, yes. And um, here's another quote from the New York Times. In this enormous epic of Cossack life during the revolution, Mikhail Sholokov has achieved even greater power, sustained narrative gift, and stirring human truthfulness. Exactly. It is, it's a very hard-hitting book. I think it's, um, you know, I, I, think, I think it's underrated. It's severely underrated, and I wish more people would read that. Don't get me wrong. Tolstoy's great, you know, and Dostoevsky, of course, is, you know, just magnificent. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people overlook Sholokhov because maybe it's too niche for people. I don't know. I'm just, uh, I just think a lot of people are sleeping on this and they should read Quiet Flows the Dawn. And his other series, too, like uh, The Dawn Flows Back to Sea, um, Harvest of Tomorrow, um, the fate of a man, um, anything by Sholokov. He's very hard hitting. Mm -hmm, right. And here's a little bit about the background of the author for those who are interested. So he is writing about something that he himself experienced. Mikhail Sholokov was born in 1905 in a village in the Don region of a family that had been living there for many generations. Despite poverty, he was able to attend school in Moscow. At the age of 15, he returned to his native village to become a school teacher, then a statistician, a food inspector, and held various other jobs. He began writing when he was 18 years old. Today, he is the Soviet Union's, well, I mean, this is written in the past, most famous and widely honored living novelist. And Quiet Flows the Dawn was published in 1928 in the Soviet Union and in the United States in 1934. Its sequel, The Dawn Flows Home to the Sea, available in vintage books, was finished in 1939 and appeared in America in 1940. Although each is complete in itself, the two books are often referred to under the title The Silent Dawn. Other volumes by Sholokhov that have been translated into English are Harvest on the Dawn, Seeds of Tomorrow, and Tales of the Dawn. In 1965, Mr. Sholokhov was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. It does bear testimony, I think, to, you know, I mean, write, I think it's wonderful when, a, when an author can write what he knows. And, I, you know, Selikov embodies that, like, I think a lot of great uh, Russian masters. And um, I think, you know, like, for people who love Russian lit, I mean, I... And you haven't, and you haven't gotten to Sholokhov, you know, read Sholokhov. Mm -hmm, right. How would you describe his style compared to, you know, someone who is more romantic, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky? Very good question. So basically, when a lot of people read Russian lit, the first thing everyone weans everybody on 
is Tolstoy. Um, Tolstoy is at heart a romantic narrative. He is very idealistic. He is very religious. Unfortunately, there are times where there's this flaw with Tolstoy, which is just my personal opinion, but you know, no one come with an axe after me. Sometimes Tolstoy comes off as slightly Dickensian. And when I say Dickensian, I mean, he, he writes a little bit like Dickens in the fact that, especially when he's writing about peasantry or people that he does not know the world about, he tends to do it in very generalized terms. It feels very distant, very sentimental. Um, it feels like a stereoscope, and it just shows sort of the distance removal um, of Tolstoy from that world, even though he claim even though he tried to live as a peasant and all that the thing is although he idealized peasant living like many in the nobility did he could not understand it he could not fully survive it and you know as a result you know it, it becomes stereoscoped so Tolstoy's style compared to Sholokhov Sholokhov has lived in the world that he's writing about he knows every detail right from the grit of like details that no one would think about like um you know like for example now this is something i know having grown up in kind of an agricultural culture um for all you folks out there i live in the middle of nowhere in pennsylvania surrounded by all mission farmers so you know a lot you, you will learn a lot of these things but um one thing a little detail i loved was um Sholokhov describing Gregor, now with when you have leather, you have to grease it up. Now some people buy linseed oil like we do around here, but Gregor is using, I think, pork grease to uh, take care of the leather because you don't want leather to dry out. If it dries out, it rots, it snaps. Especially if this is your saddle and your saddle snaps, you are done for. Um, you don't want anything of leather snapping or ruining on you. So you need to keep it well oiled. Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that Sholokhov knows all these little tiny details of farming in the southern region of Russia. Um, and, and he himself, you know, is of uh, possible Cossack extraction, you know, on, on his, um, you know, there's, there, there's a, you know, when you look at his bio, you know, not only where he lived, but, you know, he's possibly the illegitimate son of a Cossack and, I don't know, I'm, just, I'm sorry, just this thinking because, you know, Andre and his escapade, but I'll get into that later. Um, but, ba but basically, to add, fully answer the question, compare Tolstoy to Sholokhov. Tolstoy is wonderful, but he meanders a lot with the religious ideals, romantic notions, stereoscoping, and cramming way too many historical details. Sometimes Tolstoy is like Victor Hugo, and it's irritating. But... Sholokhov knows when to trim down the historical details and get to the heart of the plot. And Sholokhov's pacing is brutal. You have to keep up with it. It is more brutal than I don't know what. It is it is like it is like a ten mile jog, you know, five AM in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of information in Tolstoy. Yeah, there is. I, I th sometimes Tolstoy info dumps, I think. I think it's also because, you know, when he was writing, he was writing for a serial format. That's true. Like, I think he was getting paid by the word, like Victor Hugo. Oh, my gosh. No wonder. 
Yeah, I don't know if Sholokov was doing that, or did he just publish it all as one book? He published it, I believe, as kind of like a, not quite a serial, but somewhat of it. But the thing is, it was more of a, it was a sort of a slightly political commission. But then also, too, Sholokov struggled with plagiarism because somebody claimed he plagiarized it from someone but I don't think he did. And of course, there's been contrary to show that he is innocent of plagiarism. I honestly think it's just, you know, political backbiting. I mean, 1920s, you know, newly formed Soviet Union. I mean, that's not the friendliest place to start literary movements. I mean, or be involved in literature because people are going to stab you in the back. I mean, I think about what look like, look, look what happened to Mayakovsky. I mean, he pretty much got eaten by the dogs. In your opinion, what about this book is lacking? What's lacking in Quiet Flows the Dawn? I think, I think sometimes it's, it becomes too heavy with its political uh, message, or rather its political posturing, because it's never outrightly said, but there is a lot of political posture. But remember, Shalikov has to write in favor of where he's living. And he has to make communism look good. And if he says anything to the contrary or critique it, this lands him in hot water. And more than hot water. More like the gulag. But um, what also lacks in Shalakal's works, unfortunately, um, sometimes a lot of his work feels extreme. A lot of the events in Quiet Close the Dawn focus on violence, sexual assault, rape domestic violence, um, sort of a cold-hearted brutality. And this is kind of, this is kind of a flaw I see with some other modern Russian writers, like say Solzhenitsyn and other people, other writers. The thing is, you know, are these events exaggerated for political purpose? I mean, is everyone murdering and raping each other? I mean, yes, the world is frightening and brutal and terrifying, but you know, I think, I, I want to think, as much as I can be slightly misanthropic at times, I want to believe that a lot of fellow human beings have a consciousness and won't do dreadful crimes against people. I, I want to believe that. But unfortunately, the world proves me wrong otherwise. But like I said, even if these events are happening, are they going to happen coincidentally to these major characters? or just random people at random times, which is what, you know, just the, the way fate processes is how, is how it goes, if that makes any sense. So I, I think that's the only thing I feel lacking in Sholokhov. Um, sometimes it does feel a little bit like camera lens, where he fails to focus on the psychology of the character, and then it kind of veers, not into Tolstoy, but it veers a little bit into Chekhov, where... Chekhov is giving us camera lens where we see the outwardness of the character or the exterior, but we don't get to see the interior. So it feels it's sometimes theatrical and cinematic, which is why uh, Quiet Flows the Dawn um, has received in, uh, about a few, I would say several adaptations for film and television, um, some of which I think were done very well. I, I think the 1950s version will always remain, I think, the best, because it, it felt the most accurate in terms of style and tone, while 
I didn't quite there were some things I liked about the 2015 television series but the casting was all wrong and everybody was like I don't know I feel like ethnically miscast. Mhm. That's right. Yeah, I think it's a classic but at the same time I think because it's a classic some people don't really think about why it's lacking in some certain aspects. It's just kind of taken for granted that it's, you know, really classic. That's true. I mean, I think a lot of times classics tend to be the sacred cow of literature and we're afraid to critique it because we're like, "Oh, I can't critique it. It's classic. Like how can I do this to a master? It stands the test of time." But the thing is you can. I think there's no such thing as well, I won't say that, but I think it's very rare to encounter a piece of literature that is entirely flawless. And believe it or not, it's these deficiencies, these lacking things, these flaws in great literary classics that cement its charm and appeal or its strength, I think. Um because when when you find that lackingness you're you're able to fill in the spot or interpret that interpret how you will yourself mhm mm that makes sense and i think that's what you're doing with 70 fierce years right your novel about andre and how he's also a cossack because he kind of is filling in this gap of you know not knowing what the characters are actually like because as we talked about in our you know christmas podcast this year sometimes when there's too many characters and there's too much focus on events you know each character feels like they are kind of empty like they're too vague and you don't even know what they're they're actually like as people and i i agree with you that and quite flows the dawn has this problem i mean we see gregor so many times and so many things happen to him but he kind of he kind of becomes defined by the events that happen to him he doesn't really have much of a personality other than being very hot-blooded and being very passionately in love with axinia and being mean to Natalia cuz he doesn't like her and how she's trying to cling on to him when he wants to only be with Exenia. Exactly. That's another flaw um of Quiet Flows the Dawn. It becomes theatrical like Chekhov and the the uh downside to when you're doing something in theatrical style is that you really don't get to get into the meat and heart of a character and what's going on through their brain what is their personality like what are their intricate um fibers of their soul you know um what are the small details like what are their what is their favorite food um you know what what are they as a human being in the sense of self i think the greatest maybe the greatest glaring flaw is that the characters feel like they lack a sense of self because they seem like actors mm -hmm. within the panorama of the events and they are only defined by their reactions to said events. I totally agree and I think this is a problem we discussed yesterday too. Kind of like how the frost lords kind of a he's kind of reacting to all the events you put into his life, especially the human part of his life, you know, which was strangely cut off from the frost lord part of his life. very much so and and that's why it felt so detached and like you said that's why it felt like two separate stories right and that's why i warned you against cramming in too many details because it felt like to me to an outsider who wasn't in your in your mind when you were writing it it felt like you were cramming too many details into one person's story 
because you thought that you know oh this would give more exposure to the character because a lot of people like angsty backstories and you wanted to explore certain things but you didn't want to create a new character because people already knew the frost lord so you didn't want to create a new character that no people no one would pay attention to exactly exactly when you have a character that a lot of people like and they're clamoring over you just want to run with it and that is such a tempting pitfall for many creators and uh, I fell into that and I'm I'm glad that I I left that behind mhm I think Andre's the perfect balance there's nothing in his life that feels like it's crammed in and it, it just feels so natural you know even though like the frost lord he does change a lot especially since you know the communist revolution changes his whole life and the trajectory of his life it never feels like he becomes a different person no no it doesn't he 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 will always remain andre i mean even as an old man you know this this old you know army dog i shouldn't say dog i mean dog in the most loving way but um he's still andre i mean he's still loudmouth opinionated um but very warm and loving and boisterous like we even get to see snippets of this in the beginning where you know he's talking on the phone with his um with his granddaughter you know Mishatka's daughter and you know you know he's really urging his son to go get the granddaughter a puppy that she wants Mhm. Exactly. You know what? Uh, Andre also has a voice and this is what the characters in End Quiet Falls to Dawn don't have. We follow Gregor and Axinia for so many acts, but we never know how they're like, especially Axinia. I think Gregor's not as bad, but Axinia's really bad because honestly, you know, so many bad things happen to her, but you still don't care because she's just a name and a face. Well, not a face even, but I mean in the movie she would be a face. That's true. Ironically, the 1950 version of Quiet Flows of the Dawn, it it actually feels a little bit more powerful than the book because now you have a face to the characters and you get to see their emotions and like some of the violence can be pretty terrifying. Like some of the cinematography used like when Stepan is beating the holy lights out of Axinia they're actually tumbling the camera around and you really feel it from her pov and it's it's pretty uh it's pretty shaky i mean especially for 1950s soviet cinema i'm like wow you know they really mm -hmm. went on this one you know and another thing is that none of the couples feel convincing especially gregor and axinia even though they have so much camera time it just feels like it's there because of dramatic dramaticism it, there has to be the central couple and there are all these forces tearing them apart and you know this kind of thing but you know why are they together like i don't even understand what draws them together that's what that's what always made me question like why why are they attracted to each other why are they so devoted and in love and what kind of conversations do they even have because we don't even see anything No we don't. That's you know ironically spoilers for people who didn't read the book. You might we might as well drop spoilers. I love uh Bonachuk and Anna even though they had such little screen time. I ship them forever in my heart. They are a lot better. They have better dialogue and they feel like they actually have personalities that you want to get to know even though it's so lightly sketched. Especially Anna. I think her family like her mother and sister kind of added a little bit to it even though it was so short like you wanted to know more about her and how she's a student and how she got into communism 
Exactly. Anna was so compelling. Like the first pages I saw Anna, I was like, I love and cherish this woman. She's amazing. You know, the fact that she gets involved, you know, with her political and social convent, you know, convictions and, you know, she's risking her life and she's cross-dressing. I mean, what an amazing woman. Right. Exactly. And we also see her vulnerability. So it's not like, you know, you know, the modern Hollywood girl power, you know, ever since Mulan, cross-dressing woman with a gun, you know, kick ass. Exactly. <laughs> so she's you know, human. So she's not, she's not just like, you know, some female, like Terminator. <laughs> exactly. Because she's not like Josh Whedon's females, which I know, I'm sorry for all you people still clinging on to tw 2012 Marvel no nonsense. Josh Whedon is terrible at writing female characters. There, I said it. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, Axinia, unfortunately, she falls flat in the book because we don't even know anything about her except for her being a victim of domestic abuse and the fact that she's in love with Gregor. But I don't know why. I still don't know why. And yeah, that's the only thing. And of course, you know, Axinia has like the most um, traumatizing beginning, like with her stepfather. It's, it's oh, like, yeah, really, that was terrifying. Oh and the fact yeah. that like two of her kids died. Exactly. Like, you know, Sholokov, can you make this woman's life any more tragic? You know, is there anything else you can do? Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, I think it was also for a political point to show how, quote unquote, barbaric the Cossacks were. Because even at the back of this book, there's a quote by someone called Malcolm Cowley from New Republic. This is his quote. In addition to its panoramic grandeur, the wealth of its characters Huh? Okay, I didn't understand that one. There's no wealth of characters. <laughs> and it's historic realism. Sholokov's book is memorable for its portrayal, portrayal of the primitive and already almost legendary life of the Don Cossacks. So I think there's this kind of understanding that the Cossacks were quote-unquote primitive, right? Compared to communism. Exactly, and I... I've always wanted to rectify this a little bit. I am not here to say Cossacks were entirely innocent. And by the way, we should, I, I will specify Don Cossacks because different hosts, which, you know, for people out there who don't know, for Cossacks, a host means a group of Cossacks. So you have different political group factions of Cossacks. These are called hosts. Each of these reacted differently to communism. For example, more Kuban Cossacks who were from the Kuban region within the Kuban River uh, pretty much welcomed communism. Like, hey, sounds cool, bro. You know, cool beans. I mean, some of them opposed it, probably. And, and you know, mostly, you know, some did. But, this, and, um, and for the other ones, it's... It, there's there's less data available, but it's like communism came like, ah, eh, whatever. But the Don Cossacks opposed it because the Dons were the most central and organized and political. They also had the most writing on this because under the Tsarist order, if you will, you know, the Tsarist order at, um, gave them sort of semi-autonomy. They did not want to lose this, nor did they want to lose this separate identity under the homogenization of communism because communism is encouraging everybody like you know become homogenous you know just become communist and you know you, you know what i mean it's it's a bit of ethnic erasure you know no one likes right. to talk about this but you know people say oh but they translated things in other languages ethnicity 
culture identity is not always language based. It, it can be traditions, ideas, thoughts, political or social autonomy. And communism sought to eradicate that. And I guess what I want to show is that from what I've gotten channeled from Andre, not everybody is some savage barbarian, you know, raping and beating everybody. Um, you know, they are human too. They, mm -hmm. they have lives too. And, um, they, they have differences and, you know, they did a lot of things that weren't innocent, but they weren't these demonic monsters, you know? Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally agree. Cause like, I'm not going to read out anything here because it's too long, but I'm just looking through the book and I do recall how at the beginning of the book, you're basically bombarded with violence. You're bombarded with some very traumatizing violence. Like, oh my gosh, they're really writing this. Like, you know, after this, you're, I mean, it, it really rattles your nerves. Just, um, Sholokov just bombards us with this, with this violence. It's almost like reading a crime rap sheet or something. Mm-hmm, exactly. But yeah, oh. it, I, but it is well described, just like in your book, 70 Fierce Years, the first part of the book is basically just about Cossack life, right? And I guess Grisha's right. already kind of grown up, but he's still very young. And then still for Andre, I mean, he grows up as a kid, as a teen, and then, you know, all the way until, you know, he's in his 20s, right? And then, you know, it's the war, and then suddenly everything changes. And for him, I mean, for Gregor, it's also the war that changes him a lot. But we never see the interior of his life. We can see from the outside something has changed because he seems a lot more serious and sad. And he has, you know, PTSD recollections of killing people, especially the Austrian soldier. But, you know, we don't really see much other than that. We still don't really understand who Gregor is as a person, even by the end of the book. Exactly, we don't. And that's that's one of the disadvantages um, of how Sholokov presents this. As I said, he's doing it, he has these psychological interludes, but there has to be more than psychological interludes to build a character's voice and to build who they are. And I think I sought to do differently with Andre or whether Andre took over and just told me to sit down while he <laughs> he guided my hands on the keyboard. And mm -hmm. um, I guess Andre wanted to set the record straight. <laughs> I mean, he is a little bit biased because he is talking about himself and his own uh, ethnic identity and his own politics. But honestly, if there wasn't bias involved in it, would it be accurately his own voice, you know? Right, exactly. And this is why every time you sit down to write Andre, you can write like, you know, 10,000 words or something because, you know, Andre, you feel like he is really guiding you. But unfortunately, you know, for the longest time, you didn't have this connection with some of your other characters, such as Kai. No, I didn't. I, I think it's because Andre's a very forceful man. I mean, like I said, Andre... He's like that mean gift of Mr. T busting down your door when the woman calls on the telephone for help. I mean, he's exactly like that gift, you know. And um, Andre has to be the most intense uh, medium channeling I've ever had. And, you know, it's like he writes it himself. It's almost like I don't write it. He just sits down and narrates it. And I have to take long breaks because sometimes working with him is exhausting. He is a wonderful warm man but he's very bombastic very boisterous very belligerent very bellicose and 
oh, all these B words. <laughs> um, but it's it's exhausting. I, I sometimes I need like maybe a month break after doing a couple weeks of Andre because he's that tiring. Mm-hmm. I understand. Well, here's yeah. some bits about Gregor's personality, and this is how you know Sholokov narr narrates uh, Gregor's personality. So his family's talking about him, and he's getting married to Natalia, whom he doesn't like, but she's crazy about him. So it says that Gregor's a disrespectful lad. I was coming from church the other day, and he passed me without a word of greeting. The old men don't get much respect these days. Oh, well, as long as Natalia likes him. He took almost no part in the negotiations. He came out of the kitchen and sat down at the table for a moment or two, drank a glass of vodka, and then, feeling himself quite drunk, uh, went off again. For two days, he quietly watched the happy Natalia, then evidently softened in his attitude. And this is actually um, not a Gregor. This is actually someone else. It's actually Natalia's granddad. So then he talks to her and he, he, she, he's, she's happy. And then here's the description of the wedding. The wedding was fixed to take place on the first day after the feast. On the day of the assumption, Gregor came to visit his future bride. He sat at the round table in the best room, shelled sunflower seeds and nuts with the bride's girlfriends and then drove away again. Natalia saw him off. Under the roof of the shed, where his horse was stand standing saddled with a smart new saddle, she slipped her hand into her breast and, flushing, gazing at him with eyes expressive of her love, she thrust him a small little bundle, warm from her breast, into his hand. As he took the gift, Gregor dazzled her with the whiteness of his wolfish teeth and asked, What is it? You'll see. I've sewn you a tobacco pouch. Gregor irresolutely yeah, drew her towards himself, wanting to kiss her, but she held him forcefully off with her hands against his chest, bent herself back, and turned her eyes fearfully towards the window of the hut. They'll see us, she whispered. Let them. I'm ashamed to. Natalia held the reins while he mounted, frowning. Gregor caught the stirrup with his foot, seated himself comfortably in the saddle, and rode out of the yard. She opened the gate slightly and stood gazing after him. Gregor sat his horse with a slight list to the left, dashing, waving his whip. Eleven more days, Natalia mentally calculated and sighed and smiled. I love that description. It's, it, it paints a beautiful picture and I think it reveals these little tidbits of um, Gregor's character. But if anything, I think it reveals more of Natalia's character. Yeah, I think more of Natalia. Gregor is still a little bit vague here. I mean, from what people are saying, he's disrespectful. And, you know, we know he's hot-blooded because of his affair with Axinia. And he seems, he seems kind of, you know, detached from Natalia. Yeah, he does. And also, like, here's the thing. It's such a, it's such a mismatch because... Natalia's modest, meek, and shy. Gregor is, well, for lack of a better word, he's a bit of a horn dog, and it just ain't gonna cut it. Um, and this is, of course, why going back to seventy fierce years, who but anybody who, who on earth is gonna handle? Who's who's going to handle about forty years of marriage? Well, I guess forty years of marriage, almost forty years of marriage. Uh, to Andre than tattoos you. I mean, what other woman on this earth could handle Andre like that? 
That's true. I don't think Andre's nearly as bad as Gregor, though. Gregor's more violent. I think he's also meaner, too. Because, I mean, he actually, I think he's kind of selfish with Natalia. Like, he knows that she loves him, but then she, he kind of likes denying her a little bit. Kind of yeah, almost he does. mocking he's her. Mean. Yeah, he is. He's being mean and mocking her. And it, it is mean. For example, how Andre would have reacted, you know, with Natalia. If he had to have gotten married in such circumstances, I think he'd be more thoughtful. I think he'd try to figure out what she likes. And, yeah, Andre's a bit of a flirtatious horn dog. And, I mean, he he gets almost French many times. He's like Pepe Le Pew sometimes. But um, I, I think he would have respected her boundaries, I think, a little bit more. And Andre's the sort of person... If he knows that you like him, he's more than eager to accommodate, you know. I mean, he's more than eager to accommodate. And, you know, I, I, you know what, the more I think about it, the more I think, even if Andre would have found Natalia boring, I think he would try his best to be a good husband. He probably would have an affair on the side, but he tried to keep it secret from her so he doesn't hurt her feelings. That's true. Yeah, I guess so. And also, I just realized that I think Andre's more of a horn dog than Gregor because Gregor is not really pursuing anyone other than Axinia. That's true. Meanwhile, Andre's pursuing. Andre pursued half of his town, his Stanitsa. And then after getting married to Tatuzia, I don't know. Well, gee, how many affairs did he have? I think he had like five, but the only thing that got really crazy and serious was the one with Yelena. Because of the because mm -hmm. of Mishaka. right? Yeah. And you know, it's ironically it's Axinia who has the affair on Gregor. I mean, okay, I guess Axinia is married to Stepan, but then she has an affair with Gregor, and they run away, and then he has to go to war, and then or something, right? I think he went to war, and then she had an affair with that governor dude. Yeah, with Eugene Evangi, yeah. Yeah, Vengi, what a weasel, honestly. But I don't, I don't, ex I expect nothing less from a weasel like him. That's true. But yeah, I think, you know, Axinia is someone who is, I guess, easily swayed in a way. Because I think Gregor also had similar, you know, uh, s uh, situations. I mean, he could have, you know, earlier on in the story left her for Natalia, but he didn't. So I think Axinia is more easily swayed. Definitely more easily swayed, I would think. Um, definitely more easily swayed. Um, I think she's more susceptible, more vulnerable. I think she. I think she's more more emotionally hot headed than Gregor. I think she is, and I think she lacks more of an identity. She you know, does. She just kind of lets herself be controlled by other people. Exactly. And the moment a man pays attention to her, she falls apart and is already in, in their arms. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the flaws of And Quiet Fools Dawn is, is the people. You know, it's very it's very bloated and very epic, like many Russian lit books. But I think unlike Dostoevsky, the people don't feel fleshed out. But in Dostoevsky, even though it is bloated and very convoluted, the characters do feel fleshed out. They do. It's like, just just reading Dostoevsky, everybody feels a lot more sympathetic. You suddenly want to race and protect some of the people. Um, the and, dialogue's a lot better, too. 
Dialogues are a lot better. I mean, you know, here's the thing. Sholokhov is very good at capturing um, the manner of style of speaking of Cossacks, you know, like expressions and things like that. Um, but it, it's the way the characters interact with their dialogue. It feels very vague. And you know what I think it is? I think it's the context we lack as outsiders. And I was very glad to have Andre around, I guess a little bit like a translator, because Andre was kind of giving me the meanings behind certain expressions or the way some people reacted, which, you know, when I first read it, I'm like, okay, ah, I didn't get that. Flew over my head. I'm an American. Sue me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, you know, I try to incorporate, I try to let Andre show that as much as he does. But, you know, I think Andre takes a little bit of time to explain it because Andre knows this is a memoir, so he knows he's talking to outsiders. So this is why you'll notice every every few chapters he'll take a little step back and, you know, let you know that he knows we're all just these modern young pups with notes. We, we don't understand his world, you know? That's true. Right. But yeah, I think this was a really great review. And I guess... <laughs> In general, we would say that this is a really great description of Cossack life. And the the descriptions of society and things like that are really great, especially the transition from Cossack life to communist, you know, the communist era. I think that was really fascinating. But definitely the characters are lacking. Their interactions are sometimes not very believable and neither are their motivations. Definitely. So Quiet Flow of the Dawn great political and social drama developing before our eyes, but sometimes it feels too theatrical and empty. So it's a great book. Uh, if you want to absorb Cossack culture and understand the history um, unfolding before the Cossack and kind of have a, a bit of a sanitized look um, at de-coss- at the decossification, decossification uh, policies that took place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Tete. This was a really, really great review, and I've been wanting to do it for a long time, so I'm glad that we finally did it before the end of this year. I'm very glad we did it, too. Thank you for having me on here. I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for setting this up. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.